Hello, and welcome to Moments That Made Her, a podcast where the rare and unique women that hold senior private equity roles share their stories, including the key personal and professional moments that define their journeys and the lessons that they learned along the way. I'm Kirstie McGuire, Executive Director of PE Win. For those of you joining us for the first time, Moments That Made Her is a production of the Private Equity Women Investor Network also known as P.E. Win, We are the preeminent organization for senior-level women investment professionals in private equity. P.E. Win provides its members with opportunities to network, share ideas, make deep connections with peers, and empower each other to succeed. Our mission is to increase the profile of women in private equity, and our members represent institutions with over $3 trillion in assets under management. To learn more, please visit pewin.org. The host of Moments That Made Her is Kelly Williams. Many of you know Kelly as the founding chair of P.E. Win, as well as the founder of the legendary private market solution business known as the Customized Fund Investment Group, which she and her team grew to manage $30 billion of assets until she let it sail in 2014. She is now the CEO of the Williams Legacy Foundation, and serves on the board of the Greenbrier Companies and Grasshopper Bank, and chairs the board of the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Welcome to our latest episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm Kelly Williams, the founding chair of the Private Equity Women Investor Network, And I am so excited today to have as our guest, Carol Stryker. Carol has had a fascinating career and has a very big job at KPMG. And so I'm really excited that we're gonna have a chance to get to talk to her today. So welcome, Carol. Thank you, Kelly. So great to be here. Excited for our time together. Me too. Well, you know, and we've had a great partnership with your firm for many years. KPMG has really been a leader in all aspects of looking for equity and equality in the financial services world, but particularly around gender equity. And so I'm, again, we're, we're just so happy to have you as a partner, but I'm more interested today to learn a little bit more about you. And so I want to start where we always start and ask you to tell us a little bit about how and where you grew up. Yeah, perfect. So I was born in Chicago, where I still live today, but I was raised about an hour outside of Chicago in a small town in Indiana, right on Lake Michigan. And that was kind of where I grew up. It was nice to be near Chicago in a big city, but also on the lake. So it was a nice upbringing. And, you know, Kelly, I've heard a couple of the other podcasts where, you know, the women talked about you know, their families and their their parents being very instrumental in their development. And that's very similar to, I think, about my my background and and my foundation of, of how I grew up. My parents both worked. My dad was a management consultant and very instrumental in kind of helping me pave my path as a professional and, and doing deals. And my mom was a really great role model as well. She was a school teacher and worked really hard, did a lot of volunteer activities, taught the church choir for the kids, and just always a hard worker. 
and went back to get her master's while also working full time. And so, you know, was a good role model for me as well. So both of my parents were really instrumental in, in my upbringing. So that was a little bit about my background. Well, that's great. Gives us a little bit of perspective. And so leads in very well to my next question, which is, what was your first job? Yeah, my first job is, is kind of funny. I was an ice cream scooper at a very popular ice cream place, Oinks, in New Buffalo, Michigan. If anybody's been there, it's a very much of a resort town. Lines out the door up until close on Fridays and Saturdays and, and whatnot, and it was a really fun place to work. But one of the funny stories about my first job is I learned how to make a ice cream scoop that was hollow in the middle. So it looked bigger to the customers and it was less costly for the owner of the, of the ice cream business. So it was something that was kind of my, my trademark. And then I got hired away from the competition to come work at the ice cream place in the next city over and worked there and managed that ice cream place for several years thereafter. And so it is, you know, as you think about customer service, I learned early to make the customer happy and also with cutting costs of making sure that you're not spending too much money from a cost perspective. So it's, you know, I still like to get my ice cream cones, but I, I know if I'm getting a good deal or not. <laughs> That is so such a great story. I mean, it taught you a little bit about profit margin. It, it certainly taught you about, as you say, about customer service. And I love that we have that in common because those of you who've heard the podcast before know that my first job was at an ice cream shop. It was a Dairy Queen. Now, my claim to fame was that I could do that Dairy Queen curl perfectly, and I can still do it to this day. If I ever have a, a soft serve machine, I always have to demonstrate to everyone that I've still, I've still got it. It's all on the wrist. But I love it. That's a, that is that is a great story. I also love that you got hired away by the competition. I mean, that yeah. is just hysterical. It was hilarious. But I had to do the soft serve, and I always dreaded it when I got asked to do the soft serve because I could not do the perfect the perfect swirl. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll have maybe maybe at one of our PE win get-togethers, we'll have to have a a competition around that. We'll get a yeah. soft serve ice cream machine. So, so. Uh, you know, leading on for clearly had early lessons in the ice, the hot competitive world of ice cream. But how did how did your career take you in the direction of you know M and A and doing deals and yeah. how how did you end up there? Yeah, well, it's it's kind of funny because as I think about my career, one of the things that's unique is that I kind of knew pretty early on that I wanted to go into to business and 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 whatnot. So the funny story is that when I was young, I had the opportunity to dress up at school and you know what do you want to be when you grow up? And I dressed up and you know said I was a CPA and most people are like, CPA, what's that? And I'm like, certified public account. You know, I was the dork that everybody was just like, I want to be a fireman or I want to be a teacher or whatnot. All right, well, um, do tell about the fashion moment though. What did you wear? Yeah, everybody asked that question because I was very young. So I had my Easter outfit that I had worn for Easter that year, which was a skirt and a little blazer. And then I had my mom's briefcase, which was just her bag, a black little bag that she carried her church music in. And so that was my little briefcase and my little suits that I wore. So I looked like I was all, you know, a professional woman in the <laughs> industry. So it's kind of funny. That is adorable. I think we might need but, photographs of that. Ask your folks yes. if they kept a photograph of it. 
I should. I absolutely should. It would be good to, to take that out of the archives, but more so in regards to M&A. So I was, you know, clearly driven at a young age or, you know, to, to do the business side of things. And then my clients were doing a lot of M&A. And so I, I loved what, you know, that fast paced environment, working with our clients, trying to solve their issues, helping them make really smart decisions around deals. And like I'm sure many of us, you know, I get bored quite easily. And so I'm always up for those constant challenges, constant learning and whatnot. And so once I got kind of in the deal market in 1999, I was kind of hooked. And that was really the, the, the impetus of it. And so then you've just, I've just continued on within that M&A side of things. And so I know you and I have talked about this before, but for our listeners, tell them about where you've spent your career. Yeah. So so I've been at KPMG my entire career. I've been here for now 26 years and counting. And I've been in the deal environment for, since 1999. I started an audit, but then moved over to doing transactions. And so it's been quite the journey. I've been serving clients with both private equity and in the corporate world doing strategic deals. And before leading our deal advisory and strategy practice, I led our healthcare and life sciences team. So that's my industry bend, but now obviously at the helm, cover all the different parts of our, our of our practice. So it's it's rare, as we know, for these days. Certainly in our parents' days, it was very common for people to spend their entire career in one place. But today, it's very rare. And what would you say? You know, really, what are the attributes about you, and what are the attributes about your company that allowed yeah. you to do that? Yeah, there's two things that I always think about as to why I've spent the you know 26 years here. It's it first and foremost is it's our, around our people and our culture. It is a very much of a, a, a culture where we invest in each other, care about each other, and it feels more like a family. And so that's really number one. But the number two piece is is really around you know like I said I, I can get bored easily, and so I always am wanting a challenge. And this firm is a very entrepreneurial spirited firm, and so. For me to be able to do things at a very young age of building a practice to helping clients with, you know, you know, you know, you know the MA world that's just you parachute in, you learn about a business, decide if they're gonna make an investment or not, and move on to the next thing. So I was never bored in this in this career. And the firm allowed me to be very entrepreneurial and and build things throughout my career. So those are the reasons I would say that it's allowed me to stay here for 26 years and hopefully where I will retire. Well, that's great. I, I certainly understand that. You know, I spent part of my career at Prudential Insurance Company, and I, I, again, think that's a really special place. And one of the things I loved about Pru was they were not afraid to move you around. If you were good at one job, they trusted you'd be good at another one, and and they would they would parachute you into things. And so, and that's really, for me, how I made the transition from being a lawyer to moving to the business side because they were willing to to let me do that. And so I think it's a I think it is a very good example for people who are building businesses or investing in businesses that you know if you want to avoid that turnover which can really be detrimental to your business create a culture that allows people to take risks and move around and learn new things. Absolutely. Completely agree. And I think we do a good job of that today, but I think that there's still things that we can be doing because we, we know that, like you said, you are a stronger individual, a stronger professional when you have that experience, that, that breadth of experience. I love your story of, you know, 
that's how you got into, you know, changing up your career and, and kind of taking a different path. So, you know, obviously lots of people do M&A and, and, uh, and choose that as a career path, but not, not everybody makes it to the head of their practice. And so talk a little bit about, you know, some of the moments along the way for you that helped you move into the senior ranks of your practice area. Yeah. So, you know, I would say that as I think about my journey and things that have, you know, enabled me to, you know, move into these ranks, I, I, I you know, we're, we're very much of a stewardship model in a partnership model, right? And, and so it's all about the people around me. You know, it's in the younger years, those individuals that helped groom me, mentor me, train me, and helped pull me up. And, you know, it's around me investing in the people below me and supporting me through my career to kind of help prop me up. You know, and so that's, I think that a lot of my career, of course, I had to, you know, build relationships and really invest in those relationships with both my clients as well as the people within our firm. But that's really what it was all about for me and the successes that I've had is all around the relationships that I've built. And, you know, from a client perspective, when you are able to build relationships that in, are with individuals that are true relationships and not just transactionally focused relationships, those are the relationships and the clients that last you a lifetime. And so, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, I think that is a lot of the success and that has enabled me to, you know, continue to, you know, rise up in the firm and, and you know, lead our practice. Yeah, you know, I, I really agree with you on the point about relationships. Obviously, that's what Private Equity Women Investor Network is all about. It's about senior women in our industry establishing relationships with each other. But when you think about the, the client service provider relationship, you know, that client is taking a risk on you. They're put, she, mm -hmm. She's putting her neck on the line by choosing you as the service provider. And so the elements of that relationship are not just defined by the four corners of, you know, how well you do your job. It's also how much can she rely on you? Can she trust you? Are you thinking three steps ahead? You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I think that, and I do, honestly, I think that's something that women are particularly good at is developing not just relationships, but trusted relationships. I couldn't agree with you more. That is absolutely what it's about. It's that trusted relationship and the experience and the breadth of, of experience that you bring to the table around, we've done this hundreds of times, we've done it hundreds of times within the specific space. And that if you, you know, for, for me, if, if I don't know that space extremely well, that you have to trust that I will bring the right people alongside me to do what we need to do to get the, the deal done, right? So it, it is all around that trusted relationship that we have to have with our clients. So in your long, 26-year career at KPMG, <laughs> has there ever been a time, I'm sure there are multiple, but uh, feel free to choose a few, where you've been particularly aware that you are a woman? Well, as I'm sure you know, in the M&A world, it is very common for us to be the only female in the room, right? And so that is, I think, for all of us, a very normal part of, our, of, of, the, of, the, of the journey for us. And, and I guess how I would look at it is that I learned, I think, pretty early on to not let that bother me, put undue pressure on me. I look at it from the standpoint of, I have every right to be at the table as do my male colleagues or different ethnic backgrounds, right? It's, it's we're all have the right to be at that table. And I think 
sometimes women can put that undue pressure on them, you know, have a lack of confidence to speak up at the table, at the boardroom, if they feel like they're the, you know, minority in the room. And so I'll share a story of I remember very early on in my career and went out to breakfast before a big, you know, meeting with the company we were looking to acquire with the client, the CFO. And that breakfast, I was young and I didn't speak up at all at that breakfast. And then on the car ride over, I spoke up to one of my colleagues around some of the thoughts I had. And he was like, why wouldn't have you said that at breakfast? And I was like, well, I was too nervous to speak up. And it was in that moment that some of that coaching happened on the drive over there. You know, Carol, you've got to speak up. You have to have your voice, find your voice. Um, and so some of the stuff we do with our coaching for our women that are kind of 10 years out of, out of school is, you know, sessions on find your voice and making sure that you are speaking up. So. Those are the, I'd say, some of the moments early in my career that really helped me kind of pave my path as I continue to move on. And, you know, maybe I say something stupid. We all will. And that's okay. But most yeah, of the time, know, it won't be stupid. <laughs> Let's I hope. Know, I, yeah, highly <laughs> unlikely that'll be stupid. Women tend to over-prepare for meetings, and they usually have the answer. And, you know, one of the things I coach women on particularly, because a lot of them have stage fright going into these meetings, is that 98% of the people that you meet with are rooting for you, right? You're not, it's very rare that you're sitting across the table from somebody who wants to see you fail or wants to play gotcha with you. Now, every once in a while, there's somebody who's a real jerk and just wants to, you know, they have a mm -hmm. bee in their bonnet and wants to, you know, wants to take you down. But that is so rare. Most people, even if you make a mistake, first of all, they probably won't even catch it. But second of all, if you do, they're forgiving. And if you say to them, look, I don't have the answer to that, but I'll come back to you, that is a perfectly acceptable answer. So I think once you have that realization, once you internalize that, it becomes a lot easier to walk into a room and be able to fail if that happens and realize it's not the end of the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I say that those meetings are tough enough as it is to just, you know, you've got to be all in on the meeting. You can't be having there's just, you know, this this voice inside your head, you know, bringing you any like negative thoughts or undue pressure. You got to be all in in the meeting and, you know, focused on what you should be in regards to the content. Yeah, totally agree. So, what do you consider so far the high point of your career? Obviously, you're going to have a, a much longer career and there's a lot more, lots more to do. But is there a high point that you would you would identify to date? Yeah, I would say, I mean, clearly taking on this position has been the high point, you know, as, as, as you think about kind of the, the path and the responsibilities and, you know, growing it the, the last couple of years while I've been in this position, our growth has been absolutely phenomenal, you know, taking over in the middle of a, a pandemic and when things were at an all-time low and, you know, having to build a leadership team when you can't even physically be with them in those first, you know, first eight or nine months. And so I'd say those are some of the things that I'm really proud of. And, you know, this past year, even though deal volumes are down, our business is up significantly. And so I think it's a testament to the team and, and what we're doing. Um, so I would say that's a, definitely one of the high points. I also think that another really important time in my career was, you know, when I decided to have children and, you know, have two girls that are now age 14 and 16 and navigating 
the balancing of a career working full-time and, and, and then moving to a part-time schedule for a couple years to back to full-time while also serving my clients in a very demanding part of M&A. I think that's another part of my career that has been a high point that you know, I look back on fondly. Right. And I think I'm glad to hear that you say that as a high point because I'm not sure everybody defines that. But I think <laughs> I think realizing that you can navigate it, it's probably also a reason why you stayed at KPMG for 26 years because they allowed you to navigate it. And, you know, maybe there may be some other women who modeled how it can be done. And, and one of the issues, obviously, we have in the private equity industry is that there aren't a lot of women had a 26-year career in private equity yet. And so women coming up the pipeline don't necessarily have models of how to make that career work in private equity. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a lot better today than it was clearly 20 years ago. And so I think we obviously have a, a lot of ways to go. But the thing I like to be able to just share with the, the women who are thinking about, you know, how do I balance this career? And how, if I want to have a family, I think there was a lot back, you know, 15, 20 years ago when I was starting to have those types of conversations that they just didn't think it was possible. And now we at least have some role models and not just some, a decent amount of role models that show that it can happen and that you can balance it all. And so I think that, you know, fast forward 15 or 20 years, we hopefully will have a lot more women in private equity, a lot more women doing deals. Because like you said earlier, we bring a different perspective. We have good answers. We've got good questions, right? We bring that diversity of thought to the table, which is obviously something that is valuable in the market. Exactly. And so now we're going to take a little break and we'll be right back. All right. We would like to take a brief break to thank PE Wins founding sponsors, Kane Anderson Real Estate and KPMG, as well as our platinum sponsor, TPG. If you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at info at pewin.org. Now back to today's guest. Okay, we're back with moments that made her and our guest today, Carol Stryker. So what's a particularly fun or creative moment you've had in your career? Oh, that's a good question. So I don't always think of myself as the creative person, but I definitely think of myself as the as the fun person. I guess I look at it as, as every day has to be fun. You've got to bring fun into your job every single day. And if you are starting to get to a place where it is not fun, you got to check yourself. I have that, that mentality of a work hard, absolutely, but play hard mentality. So you know, I can bring fun into every day in regards to, you know, connecting with our people, with our clients, you know, going out to nice lunches or dinners or whatever it means to, to create that. You know, I've, I've mentioned relationship building is, is clearly key to me. And I think you can get that energy and fun in work every day by connecting with, with 
those around you and having meaningful dialogue. So I guess I, I look at fun as throughout my entire career. I'm, I'm lucky to be one that, you know, when I get up every morning, I'm excited to, to go to work and enjoy what I do. I, that's great. I mean, I, I agree. I think that one of the things I didn't realize is that people found me as, as a leader intimidating because I didn't think of myself that way. And, and it's not even necessarily how you conduct yourself. It's just the fact that you have a title and you have power and you're making decisions over people's career. And so I think it's incumbent upon everyone, but particularly women, because a lot of times we just have our head down and we're working to take a minute and show people the other side of who you are mm -hmm. and whether it's as simple. I mean, the things I used to do is just at least once a month, order pizzas and sit down in the room with people and, you know, talk about what TV shows we were binging or whatever, just, just so that, you know, your team starts to see you as a real person. And, and having laughs with your team, there's no substitute for that. Like you really have to have those moments that are your, your own kind of inside jokes that you and the, and the team bond over. So I'd love to, are, are there any tricks or any, you know, any methods you use to do that? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think for sure, to your point, like, you know, finding those, you know, we're, this podcast is moments that made her. It's finding those moments that matter with the people you're connecting with. And so, you know, I think of, you know, a story of, you know, being with the CFO of a company at 2 a.m. trying to figure out the model at the last minute as we're putting together a bid, right? Like, I remember, you know, being in the hallway, just like kind of laughing and crying at the same time. We're like, oh my God, how are we going to get this done in time for, you know, the, the bid that's due? And, and we look back fondly on that moment, right? And we make fun of, you know, the intensity in that room that evening. And I think that those are the types of things that you just have to do to, uh, to make it fun and not take everything. I mean, it's serious, right? We're, we're doing big transactions and these are serious things, but, you know, take a moment to just kind of, you know, not take ourselves too seriously and, and enjoy the moments that we're in. Agree. And, and I think if you as a leader model that, it's easier for everybody else. And it's also, I think it creates the right culture. It creates maybe less stress and a culture where people realize it's okay to make mistakes. I think that's one of the most important things we as leaders can do. Because if you create a culture where people are afraid to make mistakes, they're, then they're mm -hmm. afraid to tell you when they make mistakes. And that's when a business can get in a lot of trouble if they don't know that yes. mistakes ha are happening. Absolutely, for sure. And I think it's also agree with everything you said. And then it's also really important that we understand when mistakes are made so we can learn from those those mistakes and making sure that, you know, why did it happen? What do we need to do to make sure that that doesn't happen again is really important as, as well. But do it in a way that's not threatening and, and more of a learning experience. Right. Well, and that's a good segue to the, the next thing I wanted to talk about, because obviously, most of the moments that made her are, are moments of success, but not, you know, not everyone is. We all make mistakes. I've made many, many, many where I thought my career and my life was over and, you know, just didn't know what was going to happen and started to thinking about, you know, can I bag groceries at Walmart? Like, what can I do? And so I'm not, I'm not looking for anything that dramatic, but, you know, are there any examples you could give people sort of teachable moments where maybe things didn't go the way you thought, but at the end of the day, you you and the team learned something and, and came through the other side. Yeah. 
So clearly there is, I'm sure, lots of different stories I could I could tell in regards to, you know, lessons learned and, and whatnot. One I like to kind of share, because it is something that I really have I've grown from and learned from. It was, you know, somewhat earlier on in my career. So I was a manager and an and earlier director. And there was an individual that was assigned to me on projects. And we worked together on a handful of, of projects. And I really didn't, lack of a better word, I didn't really like working with him. We weren't, we didn't have similar interests. Our styles were very, very, very different. And so I, I tried to remove myself from working with that individual. And I realized after the next couple projects that that was a really dumb decision for me because he was completely my opposite. And I learned in that moment that when you find somebody who is your opposite, you are such a stronger team than you are just yourself. And so it was really kind of, a, it's been such a blessing to me is, is I, I you know developed my leadership team when I took over the deal advisory and strategy practice. The first thing I thought about was who needs to be my right hand and that person has got to be somebody that is so different than me so that together we are in a you know a really unbelievable team and I go back to that experience where I I I made the wrong decision in regards to saying I didn't want to work with this individual because maybe I didn't like going out to dinner with him in the evening or, you know, things like that. And that, you know, was a, a good lesson to learn at a young age so I could not make those mistakes as I journeyed on in my career. Well, it's a it's a great illustration of, you know, what happens in, in companies where there's a lack of diversity because people don't want to work with people who aren't who are dissimilar, right? Where, you know, mm -hmm. the, the classic example is you've got you know, private equity firms where everybody is a graduate of HBS and they all worked at Goldman and they're all male and they're all white. And, you know, and because they have that kind of group think they have that shorthand. And, and I always kind of joke when people say culture eats strategy for lunch which is, it's true, culture is important, but a lot of times that is shorthand for, I just want a lot of people who are like me. And a lot of, I think, firms hide behind culture. Like we don't want to change because our culture works. But to your point, you're missing, you're missing so much in terms of things that could provide you a competitive advantage or a broader mm -hmm. view of the market or just a new innovative way to think about things. So I think that's a that's really a great example. Yeah. And I think about I completely agree with every everything you said as as well as, you know, as you are a big enough, you know, organization, you can have your, you know, your pod of people that you get along with the best, you know, socially, but if you can, you know, have that diversity on the on the wider team, that is just so much stronger. I mean, we have the benefit of, of being a you know an enormous firm, and so you can kind of have your your pod of people that you like to hang out with, maybe socially. But when you're working with your clients and working on teams, you need to bring that diversity to the to the to the projects. I agree. You know, my uh, my boss when I was at Prudential Insurance Company was John Strangfeld, who eventually became the CEO of of Prue, 
And I remember him, I, I quote him on this all the time. He, he used to say, you know, okay, you, when you manage people, you have this matrix, right? And it's a very simple four box matrix. And you've got red, you've got green, red, green, red on the axes. And so the green, green box, those people are easy to manage because you get along, you're very simpatico. In the red, green, you know, the red, green boxes, you can figure out a way, right? You have enough commonalities. It's the person in the red, red box that really challenges you as a manager. And mm -hmm. it's the person you most try to shy away from, mm -hmm. but is the one that's going to teach you the most and, mm -hmm. and demonstrate whether you're a good manager or not. So I can't tell you how many times throughout my career I've just referenced the red, red box because you, there, there are plenty of people who end up with that. But it, it was such a simple illustration, but I think about it all the time because, yeah, I mean, there are bound to be people like that who challenge you and just no matter how you look, you can't find the commonality. One of the things I use because I, I'm trained as a lawyer and I really like to understand the other side's argument, even if I completely disagree with them. It's mm -hmm. fascinating to me. I think it makes you better at, at your own argument if you understand the other side, is really to do that, to like, if I meet somebody that I just fundamentally cannot get along with, I really work hard to understand where they're coming from. Completely agree. And you talk about the four box. I have a similar one that I think of, you know, I know in the version I looked at, I'm in the bottom right. And so I look for somebody to work with me who's in the upper left so that I've got, even though I don't maybe necessarily always enjoy working with them, I know that that's the, the way we need to be. And so, yeah, it's, it's, I agree with you completely. So is there anything else you would point to personal or professional that you, you would say really had a you know, profound impact on you? Obviously becoming a mother did. Yes. Is there anything else that you would, you would point out that you said really changed, changed who you are? Yeah. I mean, I think the one of being a mother is probably the one that is the, the, the one that taught me a lot of different skills that I had no idea that I would get from being a mother, you know, clearly being patient and, and uh, figuring out you know, how to be more patient. I'm not the most patient person there is. And so you have to be patient with kids. And, you know, I think another one is just around control. I like to be in control all the time. And, you know, when having, becoming a mom, you're not in control. And especially in those years when they're toddlers, you get reminded on a daily, hourly basis who's in control. <laughs> it's not always you. And, I think also like just in the, you know, with my husband as well is that I liked to be in control of everything, but we had to start sharing, you know, responsibilities that maybe, you know, having him pay the bills instead of me being in control of everything, you know, it, relinquishing some of that control was really important as well. And so I think those are, those are some of the things I'd say that, you know, becoming a mom has really been a big part of, I guess, a change for me that, you know, impacted me both personally and professionally. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. It's one of the things that keeps you real. I, I don't have kids, but I'm, I'm very close to my niece and nephew. And I, I always think of <laughs> my niece taking photographs of me when she had her first apartment, putting together Ikea furniture, like sitting on the floor and, you know, in the middle of her apartment with this mess. And she's like, yeah, here she is mistress of the universe 
you know, installing IKEA furniture, and that went up on Instagram. I was like, okay, well, th this is this is kind of the great equalizer. It doesn't matter how important you are, how many you know limos and jets and whatever you're in. If you're sitting in the living room putting together IKEA furniture, that's IKEA. pretty humbling. Yeah, it is. It's actually I will share a funny story as well. I won't name names, but one of you know one of my clients who's you know. Net worth is in the multi-billions. She was visiting her son that week. And I said, oh, what are you doing this week? And she's like, oh, I'm going out to California and getting my son set up to get his first apartment and whatnot. And I said, oh, what do you get to do? And she said, we're going to go to Ikea and we're going to buy all of his, his furniture. And I was like, wow. And I said, you know, they now have this thing at Ikea that you can pay to have all of the furniture put together. And she said, oh, no, no. If mom's buying Ikea furniture, it's a rite of passage that he actually has to put it together. And I was like, that was a lesson learned, right? You've got more money than you know what to do with, but your son is graduating from college and putting together his Ikea furniture. I love it. Yeah. I think that's a rule we should all institute, the Ikea rule. Totally. Like if you can't yes. put together, if you haven't had the experience of putting together Ikea furniture, <laughs> you really are not prepared for the for the outside world. You're not you're not ready for the big league. Well, now, now I want to move to one of our favorite parts of A Moments That Made Her, which is what we call the lightning round. So I'm just going to shoot some questions at you and answer at will and you know, whatever comes to mind. The first question I'm going to ask you, I know the answer to, which is, where did you take your last vacation? Oh, my last vacation was to Croatia, Austria, and Italy in July. Fantastic. What a great vacation. That's, yes. I went to Croatia after I graduated from law school and you could tell how old, how long ago that was because it was still called Yugoslavia then. And oh. uh, my best friend from law school is Yugoslavian. And so we went to go visit her family, but that's, that's an incredible trip. So do you have a favorite animal? Well, I have two animals and I don't know if they'd like it if I said one was a favorite, but <laughs> I, we have a, we have a, a dog and a cat. And so depending on my mood, I guess at any given day, one will be a favorite versus the other, but I'm the lucky one in the house that I am the favorite of the dog. So every single time I come home and last night I got home from a business trip of being away for a week, he was very excited to see me. Yeah. Which always makes well, him feel nice. It, it, there's nothing like the welcome from, from a dog. Yeah. We, we are dog and cat people. We don't have a cat currently, but we have a dog. who She's adorable. And I insisted we get her. And of course she's obsessed with my husband. Like, you know. <laughs> she, she, that way, right? she care lives if I'm around, but she, you know, she follows him constantly. What is your cell phone wallpaper? Um, picture of my husband and I on our anniversary. Ah, I like that. I like that because I, I think this key to success is keeping your relationship with your spouse first and mm -hmm. foremost. Everything, all the good things flow from that, including how well your kids do. So I love that. Do you have a favorite? Yeah. Do you have a favorite food? Ooh. Oh, I love food. I'm a total food person. Oh, favorite food. I know this is supposed to be the lightning round. It's hard to choose if you like them all. I love anything with truffles in it. Not that yeah. I get to eat truffles very often, but if I could, I would. <laughs> so I love Italian food. I love all food. Ah. Good for you. We've got yeah, a pizza I, maker, I, the Uni pizza maker, and so that's been a fan favorite lately. So plan on doing a pizza party again this weekend. <laughs> oh, that's cool. If you had a 
career other than the one you have, what would it be? There are two things that I always say. First would be a therapist, especially for those that are, you know, dealing with mental illness at a young age and, and whatnot. So I'd love to do that to help. And if that wasn't it, then I, we talk about in retirement, maybe, maybe owning a bed and breakfast in a beautiful place and, and running that I don't know if I will be up for the challenge of actually doing that, but we used to joke around with that be our kind of retirement plan. You know, it's funny. I used to say that too. I, I had a, a colleague I worked with back when I practiced law and I would say that was my dream. And he'd be like, why, if you get like the house of your dreams, would you want strangers walking around asking you for towels? And I was like, hmm, that's actually a pretty good point. So... Yeah, you might want to own it and not run it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. Like so I'm trying to, yeah, thinking of maybe plan B around that and also, yeah. you know, be there when I want to be there, but don't have to right. run it. Yeah. I think for me, I would like, I'd like to buy it. I'd like to decorate it. I'd like to create the menu, but I definitely would not want to run it. I would, yeah. I would not want somebody like asking me for towels. That would be bad. And the final question I want to ask is what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Yeah, it has to come from my dad. And my dad was, like I said earlier, just a huge inspiration for me throughout my life and career. But his, his advice was always anything is possible. You put your mind to anything, anything is possible. And that is something that his, um, you know, I think about that all the time. And when you think something's not possible, you just try and 99% of the time you can succeed. Yeah. Well, great. Well, Carol, it has been so much fun having you as my guest today. As I said, we love our partnership with KPMG. We look forward to doing more things with you all. And thank you again for spending time with us at Moments That Made Her. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for all the great work that you guys are doing as well to advance women in private equity. So excited that we have our relationship and we'll continue to do so. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm Scotty Wardell, co-chair of the PEWIN Communications Committee. As a reminder, the content in this recording is for general information purposes only and does not constitute advice. We give no assurance or warranty regarding accuracy, timeliness, or applicability of any of the contents of this recording. This recording is provided as is, and PE when expressly disclaims any and all warranties expressed or implied to the extent permitted by law. Except where acknowledged, the copyright and all intellectual property rights in all material in this recording are owned by PE Win and our affiliates and should not be reproduced without our prior written consent. Other organizations or brand names used within this recording are for identification purposes only. The content set forth in this recording may not be sold, reproduced, or distributed without P.E. Wynn's prior written consent. Any third-party trademarks, service marks, and logos are the property of their respective owners. Any further rights not specifically granted herein are reserved. Thank you again for joining us today, and we hope you tune in for another episode soon.